0: This is an ongoing crisis. The knowledge of Indigenous history is really key in working for an Indigenous addiction treatment.
1: That's Teresa Crow spreading his wings and Sandra Malcolm, the Executive Director and Program Coordinator at the Native Addictions Council of Manitoba. They're our guests today on Minobimatsuin, discussing the addictions workforce, specifically the certification in addictions core competencies and the investment their organization is making in their workforce. They're also going to talk to us about the role of treatment centers in addressing the opioid and methamphetamine crisis faced by many First Nations in this country. I'm Carol Hopkins, CEO of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, an organization that supports First Nations across Canada in mental wellness. And today, I'm hosting Minobimatsuin. Minobimatsuin means living the good life in the language of Anishinaabe. And Thunderbird chose that as a name for the podcast because it captures what we all hope for, for ourselves and those that we care about. This podcast aims to seek and share insight about addictions and mental health issues that many of First Nations families and communities are dealing with. We're going to be fearless and have thoughtful and informative conversations with some of the leading voices in Indigenous wellness. Our aim is the same as Thunderbirds, to offer support in addressing substance use and addictions issues through a holistic approach to healing and wellness. One that is grounded in culture, Indigenous ways of knowing, with a connection to community and above all else, with kindness and compassion. And today we're thrilled to have Teresa Crow spreading his wings and Sandra Malcolm on this podcast. They both work at the Native Addictions Council of Manitoba, who recently just celebrated their 50th anniversary. Well, that was in 2022, a year ago. 50 years. That's great work. It was started as a response to alcohol use amongst First Nations in Winnipeg and then has grown to address the challenges of substance abuse and addictions in First Nations communities with the goal of providing holistic, culturally-based, and trauma-informed services. Teresa is the Executive Director of NACM, and she's a Blackfoot First Nations woman from the Blood Tribe of Treaty 7, the territory in Standoff, Alberta. Teresa grew up in the child welfare system as part of the Sixties Scoop, and her healing journey has been anchored in heart work, and she's developed that heart work capacity by being a mother of two adult children and two grandchildren. Teresa moved to Winnipeg in 2004 where she has been serving the inner city community as an advocate for adults, for youth and families that are struggling with addictions, poverty, and their own mental well-being. Sandra Malcolm is the program coordinator at the Native Addictions Council of Manitoba. And Sanders' background is in nursing and specialization in mental health and addictions. She obtained extensive experience working in a variety of addictions treatment centers in the health sector and with marginalized people struggling with addictions and mental health challenges. So welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us, Carol. Yeah, Thunderbird Partnership Foundation um, has been working to bring the strengths and highlighting treatment centers and their good work by um, hosting a podcast series uh, focused on engaging treatment centers and meaningful discussion uh, about their experiences in offering quality services. So I'm so happy you're here, Sandra and Teresa. So, what does certification processes look like? So a certification in addictions core competencies. For your workforce. Can you help our listeners understand what is that about and what does it take uh, for a treatment center to support their workforce in a certification for addictions core competencies?
0: For sure, uh, Carol. Um, Here at uh, Native Addictions, it's been a learning uh, curve for us. Uh, Sandra and I are new here. We've been here two years and a little bit. And so we've really had to uh, think about, um, how do we work uh, here with counselors and mentors uh, in regards to certification as we're accredited by Accreditation Canada. And um, we've had to kind of be innovative um, with the whole global pandemic shortage of staff. um, And we are smack dab in the middle of North End Winnipeg. And so um, a lot of qualified addiction counselors are going back to their home communities after they get that educational piece so we've had to uh, figure out how do we do that so that we can offer quality of care and so um, some of the things that we have done is um, we've hired uh, practicum students uh, that are getting their addiction service uh, worker certificate in addictions um, and so that we're trying to empower them Uh, one of the values that's been really important to me is decolonizing in a colonial world while we meet the standards so that we can offer good treatment services. So um, Sandra is accredited and uh, her background is nursing and addictions uh, and she is right now our current uh, and only accredited counselor um, as the program coordinator. So I'm going to let her talk
2: about um, uh, the specifics of that certification. Thank you, Teresa. So when you get accredited in, um, you know, in the field of addictions, there are various things they ask you to have in order to be able to provide quality services to our relatives um, who uh, access programming. So some of them look like um, they talk about skills in screening a particular applicant Uh, The intake process, the assessment process, um, the counseling, the motivational interviewing skills, um, the crisis interventions, how do you plan for a particular treatment, what is their goal, how effective it can be, short-term, long-term. So these are all the core competencies, not limiting to how a person uh, collaborates with the external organizations to bridge that gap Uh, for the applicants who are undergoing treatment, and after that, what's going to be the follow-up. So these are the things what accreditation looks for. And in order to have that, uh, you need to have certain education and also certain hours to be a certified counselor.
1: So the organization is accredited with standards of excellence. In order to meet those standards of excellence, you want to ensure your staff are certified, they have the right knowledge, they have the right skills um, to be able to deliver quality services. Is that what you're saying, Sandra?
0: Can I add to that? I think it's also important that some of the core competencies uh, for us is is also the fact that that trauma-informed lens, but also the knowledge of indigenous history is really key in working for an Indigenous addiction treatment um, piece. So some of those uh, core things of understanding, culture, uh, ceremonies, teachings, those aren't the things that are necessarily in a degree um, around addictions. There are, uh, uh, like here in Winnipeg, there's Yellow Quill uh, University and college. Um, We just took on a... Uh, practicum student, actually we hired her. So she comes with all that knowledge Sandra talked about as well as she's very traditional and so she's kind kind of come and added some things for us about the importance of uh, drum in an indigenous person's life and teaching them songs. And so those core competencies are a bit different with us in indigenous organization. We're really focused on land-based healing. We really believe that the land heals. And so it's a combination of all those things, um, uh, uh, just uh, the cert- certificate, but also um, understanding indigenous ways and traditions.
1: Okay, so you used a term earlier, uh, Sandra, or sorry, that was you, Teresa. You said that we like to decolonize. We we understand we're working in a world um, where colonization is still present, but we like to decolonize. And then you started talking about the elements of knowledge and understanding that is outside of formal education. Those things are are specific to culture. And and so how does decolonization look in your services or in your staff knowledge and skills? And how does um, culture relate to uh, certification standards or certification processes? Can you connect those dots for us? I will try my best
0: here. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> um, so when I came on board uh, in 2021, um, it was really important for me to realize that uh, taking on the executive director role was a sacred responsibility. As a, a Blackfoot uh, Indigenous woman, uh, that leadership has been gifted to me. And and so those those are things and values that you are not going to find in a educational diploma or master's degree and so one of the things that I'm really been working on my own life um, in my own heart work I talk lots about heart work is understanding who I am and the effects of my life as a 60 scoop person and how do I best serve our people in that healing, and it has to look different. How we've done addiction services, uh, how we've served Indigenous people um, in in the context of Winnipeg is where my expertise is. Um, a lot of urban uh, reserve uh, and people coming in from reserve the surrounding reserves here in Manitoba, and and so it's been important to ask, what is de- decolonization? Uh, we hear lots about it. So for me, that means about being intentional about the hard work that we do, being intentional about recognizing the indigenous history of trauma around residential schools, day schools, 60 scoop, and how colonial um, a mindset is just quietly inside of us. So here we talk lots about, there's no tolerance for lateral violence. Uh, We walk in a good way in a kind way, uh, we base all our, our our ways of knowing on the sweetgrass medicine, which is a medicine of kindness. And so there's a Blackfoot word called chemocin, which is giving kindness to others. And that's where we base our decolonization practices around that. Our staff team, uh, when I started, we all sat down and we for three days and we went through a sweetgrass training exercise of past, present, future. And the team um, came up with seven Sweetgrass Statements, that is our Code of Ethics. So that translates to Accreditation Code of Ethics, check. (laughs) And so those are some of the things that we've done. And one of the important things for me is that as an Executive Director and coming from a decolonized Indigenous approach, I don't want to be authoritative. I want to come from love, love-based love practice, not fear-based practice. So I could come in and tell everybody what to do, where to go, what we need to do to meet those colonial standards. But we really work from a community mindset. And so um, when there's things that need to change in program, we get everybody's input, including our relatives. So that's part of what I talk about Decolonizing. So when we were accredited, we had uh, two accreditation surveys come in. We were uh, privileged with having people who understood and work with indigenous um, peoples and other communities. So they were able to kind of move things around because if you look in a colonial mindset in regards to um, some of those certifications, It's check the box, follow this, follow this, follow this, and there's no leeway. So accreditation is around a medical model, and we are not a medically-minded treatment center. And so it's really been an important value as we share what we're trying to do in an innovative way, in a new way, because land heals, and those are things we're not going to get Um, meeting those standards. And so our surveys were able to kind of move some things around for us. Of course, there's things that are important to us, the values of how we serve um, our indigenous relatives that come in, um, making sure they're safe, making sure that it's a welcoming environment and making sure that they're getting um, the things they need, like their medications uh, and programming. So that's kind of how we've bridged that gap between decolonizing, reach trying to reach certifications in a really colonial oppressive mindset of how treatment should be. We we really believe as indigenous people, we all know what we need. We just we just need to have that space to do it where we're not coming in and telling them what they need to not struggle with addictions or not struggle with whatever it is. So That's kind of how we bridge those
1: gaps. That's incredible because what you're talking about is you are experts in translating your culture, your values, your ways of knowing to fit what is required to demonstrate, to show that you offer quality services, but in doing that um, translation of how culture fits with certification of addictions workers and their how it fits with the core competencies, but also how it meets standards of excellence for accreditation. So two, two different ways you're talking about quality. You're talking about it through certification and accreditation, but you're using culture and your values to inform, interpret, all of it uh, to demonstrate culture. That's a pretty incredible feat. So when you say that your staff, um, there's no hierarchy, that you work in a holistic way, I got the image of a circle. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about how that actually works uh, for the benefit of clients? Like people have different ideas about you're the boss, you're the one that's supposed to decide these things. But if we're sitting in a circle as equals, who makes the decision like give us sure a, uh, I am um, I first want to uh
0: say one of the things we did was we changed our language around clients and so Sandra and I've been oh, saying relatives right. because um, right clients Thank yeah you. that's okay um, clients uh, when you go way back into the Greek and learn about those terrible words like clients and savages like all that inter mingles and it disempowers people. So we are really trying to build an organization on love, trust, and faith, which is um, cultivating safe space framework that uh, uh, Elaine Alec in Calling Back Your Spirit does. And so I'm going to be honest, it's hard work and heart work um, because uh, when I came in, it was a real learning lesson for me, because I'm really about love, and I'm really about, like, let's all get along, and Sandra, in all her expertise, came, comes from a very medical-minded place. Uh, she was a nurse, and um, she's worked in other addiction treatment centers, so we had many conversations about, like, me going, it's not clinical. And she going, but where are they getting their treatment? And me saying, but the board says land-based. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> but but what I did was I knew what I, I didn't want to be. I didn't want to be oppressive. I, I knew and learned enough about uh, working for another Indigenous organization, the importance of community, the importance of healing, the importance of as Indigenous people, we have to come from a place of rebuilding our people in how they connect with one another because we've lost our sense of belonging and our we've lost our sense of identity. And so that's some of the approach that I had to come to in how do I lead, not authoritative Because at the end of the day, I have to make some hard decisions. And at the end of the day, we still have HR policies. However, instead of HR, we think about the well-being for people. As Indigenous people, that's complicated because we have lots of of deaths in our family. We have lots of CFS in our families. And when you have staff um, that are having those same challenges as Indigenous people... Leading by authority is way easier, I will be honest. However, it's not who I am or how I wanna lead. And um, so it's been a real learning curve for Sandra and I to hash through that. So um, one of the previous people who were historically here, Barry Fontaine, uh, they did a lot of work in the 50 years uh, that the history of Native Addiction Council. And one of the things he, he said to me, um, and another elder, Don Robinson, talked to me about was this was a sacred responsibility that I had. And I've always felt since I began my time here when I was super Christian, that it was a sacred responsibility. I hold in my hands people's stories. I hold in my people's hands um, their brokenness, their all those things, not only for the people we serve, but the staff. And I take that really to heart that if people aren't growing or they stay the same, I've failed them as a leader. So one of the things that Barry talked to me about was that it is like I am the Sundance chief. And again, I'm learning these things for myself. And I, I'm overseeing a whole big ceremony. And so there's certain people that I've assigned to keep the fire, there's certain people I assigned to do the food, there's certain people I assigned to cut the wood, and he said, when you allow those people to do the jobs that they're gifted to do, I don't always have to be there micromanaging people, because that is about control when you start to micromanage people, control, um, and so you really have to make a conscious decision to, to release that. And um, so when I'm making a decision, I bring a whole bunch of different people to the table. I bring detailed people. I bring very relational people. I bring traditional people. Uh, and I bring innovative people or action people who are going to get things done. Part of my dec- decolonizing my leadership is understanding I, I know my gifts and I know them really well. I'm not a detailed person. So I have a couple very detailed people that are in my finance, and my IT. I bring them to all my all my meetings that I'm gonna need details and questions, even if it's not about finance <laughs> or or uh, uh, IT. And and when I need a bit more compassion, I have people like Sandra, who's very rooted in her faith and, and seen a different, um, side of things so that she reminds me about patience about kindness about prayer and about faith when i'm frustrated as a leader so those are some of the things that we try to do Um, and and when i'm thinking about leadership for us as indigenous people we we don't start from the top and come down We're we we move sideways (laughs) And so my organizational chart is intentionally sideways. Everyone knows at the end of the day, I'll make the right decisions, but everybody will have a voice at the table. And if it doesn't fit with where we're going, then the voice is heard and we say thank you. And we know what everyone's gifts. So part of my leadership in decolonizing is saying, okay, what is your gift? What are you good at? Okay, let's do that. So Sandra is my expertise on all things accreditation, all things that are medical-minded, all things that are um, detail-oriented, files. So when I go to her, I say, hey, do we need this? So we have a rule, 24 hours. Um, When I don't heed to that, I get in trouble. And so then there's a lot of apologies we (laughs) have to make. So, so we do. So I, I, I really work hard at not making my decision my decision, but it's in the best interest of everyone. And so I won't ever make a decision that will just benefit me um, uh, or, or Sandra, but what in the end is going to help the people that walk through this place. I want it to be, um, when I think of it, I do this like a, a sweat lodge, that it's a healing place for all of us. Um, that when we come in, we have that room to learn and grow. I apologize lots because I mess up lots. But now some, some, some of our staff, the other day I had to apologize. Uh, I didn't wait 24 hours. And I used capital letters in an email. <laughs> and I went to that person and then they were like, you know what, I should have waited 24 hours and I should have waited 24 hours
1: explain a little bit more about what does that mean, 24 hours?
0: 24-hour rule is not being reactive as a leader because, you know, you get so many things going on, and part of my healing work is about if I react, it's not going to be the best decision because I'm coming from a place of emotion, not a place where I've been able to hear everybody. And so I wait 24 hours, I listen, I'll go to you know, another staff member and say, hey, I'm going to send this email. Should I? What should I do? What should I not do? Um, So for me as a leader, I have to really listen to the people, which is very community-minded and very
1: Indigenous-minded. And takes a lot of patience to do that, Teresa. Yep, (laughs) per (laughs) Rooney.
0: Yeah, and so I'm a certified Cultivating Safe Space trainer and so it's always about starting at understanding yourself coming from a love-based place having the patience and then having the discipline to listen to others and then you have all your different protocols because we really are trying to promote validation
1: and inclusion and freedom so it is a lot of work but it's worthwhile it's a place of wellness for everyone your client sorry (laughs) your relatives Thank you for yeah. that. I want our listeners to understand what you're talking about is decolonization, changing our language, simple things like shifting what we, what we understand about people that we serve, that we work with, and not calling them clients, mm-hmm. but humanizing them and understanding from an indigenous worldview, they are our relatives. And so we refer to clients and we're shifting our thoughts, we're shifting our thinking, and we're shifting relationships by referring to people who come into our services as our relatives. But more than that, you're talking about an environment of wellness for all of the staff who are also relatives, Maybe they're facing some of the same kinds of challenges, have the same kind of history that our other relatives are seeking services for, that history of residential schools, that history of child welfare and all of those harms, history of maybe even being incarcerated, that all of that is secondary to... Um the gifts that they bring, and so you invest a lot in understanding gifts. That is extremely different than focusing on competencies, certification, education, work experience. You come together in a circle as human beings and as people to surround human beings and people who are looking for wellness. That's incredible work. Thank you. Like I said, it's a lot of
0: hard work and hard work, but...
1: Oh, I wanted to clarify, because, uh, you know, when we're talking on a microphone, it might not come clear. So I want to emphasize that what you're talking about as heart work, it's H-E-A-R-T, heart work. And that takes a lot of hard, H-A-R-D, effort, um to stay committed to working from the heart, working from the center of our being, working from our spirit um, to ensure that, well, we're trying to make it, make life better. And um, we can think about that as really hard to do. But when we work from the heart it's a little bit easier, isn't it, Teresa? It
0: is. Um, we we talk lots about calling back our spirit here, and we do a calling back our spirit ceremony. And um, Elder Don Robinson sat me down in the beginning and talked about balancing the Western approach with traditional approach, and how that was important. And um, he said, in Western approach, we start here in the mind, and we give knowledge, 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 and we forget about the spirit. And we think of that later. And he said, part of that um, connecting people with land and identity is as indigenous people, we have to start from our heart and then give knowledge, but we have to create a space where our our staff teams and our relatives can start from their heart and feel safe so that we can move forward in helping them um, with struggles with addictions. and um, Sandra and I often talk about, um, we have a real uh, core uh, faith uh, from different faith models. And we truly believe that the work we do is creator's work and he's placed us here for a certain time. So that is a sacred responsibility. And, um, but it's, it's the heart where it starts first. The competencies are important you know, you need to know about trauma. You need to know about how to properly communicate with people. Um, you need to know about addictions. However, addictions is just the result of, of a whole bunch of unresolved grief, a whole bunch of unresolved hurt, and a whole bunch of unresolved um, shame. And so if we can create a space where people are coming from a place of love, It makes all the difference, and then all those other things fall into place naturally. Um, Sandra does an excellent job in um, making sure that we're meeting the standards of accreditation uh, in regards to the medical model piece, but she also has the beautiful heart to, to view from both sides,
1: So tell me a little bit more. So I want our listeners to understand what you're seeing in terms of opioids and methamphetamines um, that are creating crisis in our communities. We are in a dire crisis in First Nations communities who are suffering from the, the assault of methamphetamine and opioids, often not having resources to be able to address it. So what does that look like within your services? How are our relatives uh, from First Nations communities presenting, um, or are they coming to your door uh, with struggles over withdrawals from opioids and struggles with the effects of methamphetamine? Tell us about what that looks like and how you address that, Sandra.
2: When we have our relatives apply from the northern community, like this is an ongoing Crisis, uh, Because on the reserves, it is so easily accessible. Even one, if one wants to stay away from it, they can't. It is that hard. However, we do have people who come and access our programming uh, with related to opiates um, addictions. So it is definitely hard for them um, to detox, to go into a detoxification center. So as a part of our process, if an application is sent in from the NAAD app, like from the northern communities, we review the application and see what their need is. And we do have a policy which states that they need to be five days sober before coming into a programming. However, it is not mandatory for them to detox because detox in itself is a whole um can of worms where you have a longer wait list and therefore some people try to get in some people are still waiting so in that process people are not able to access treatment so what we do is we take in applications and we ask them to come in and the first three days uh, of our program because it runs for six weeks at the first three days to five days it's all about detox we don't do any programming so that they come down they settle and they detox on their own. If any medical uh, treatment is required and based on that, we, we give them that medical attention. However, because it's an abstinence-based programming for us, uh, we make sure that they are regularly checked uh, through urine analysis. And then we make sure that they are there in programming without use or without having access to any of those opiates while in treatment.
1: I want to ask you a couple of things about what you said, Sandra. You keep talking about northern communities. Are you saying that opioids and methamphetamines only happens in northern communities? Are you referring to northern communities because they have less resources to address opioids and methamphetamines? Why the focus on northern communities?
2: It goes both ways. It answers both the question because of the lack of resources they have, and also it is easily uh, obtained for them to use. Uh, well, people from Winnipeg also have uh, being able to get access to it and use it. However, because uh, opiate is such um, potent drug that, you know, sometimes they are laced with fentanyl and stuff, and people don't know what they are using. And uh, there are certain times when we do our urine analysis, our baseline, we ask them for the drug of choice, and they say one drug, but then there's always fentanyl, which shows up. So meaning that it was in their system, even though they are not aware of what they are using, right? Right. So, and then another thing, lack of resources when I say, because if one wants to get clean or sober, abstinent and heal for themselves, uh, detox is the next step where under medical supervision, they can get that uh,
1: through that system. Are you aware then that there are medications to support people uh, managing the withdrawal? So fentanyl, like you said, is a very powerful opioid and it's really difficult to go without that um, opioid in their system for any period of time. And so is detox without medication or detox with medication? Can you just clarify what that means? So detox with
2: medication is when you go to a detox center and under medical supervision, where there are nurses or doctors present, okay. under that they stay there for like a period of time till it is out of their system. So they withdraw symptoms and signs get controlled through the other drugs in other um, under medical supervision that's what i mean
1: okay so you accept clients sorry no i was also going to just add like for
0: northern communities like because we're based in manitoba many of the people that are that we're serving here in Manitoba are from isolated northern communities so um, when when we're thinking of all the treatment programs across Canada that's specific to Mm -hmm. um, Manitoba and the northern communities of what we're experiencing.
1: Thanks for that clarification. We have many listeners to our podcast across the country and I don't want to create a false impression that addictions only happens in isolated communities because we know that's not not the case. Um and um, so, and I also wanted to clarify um, this idea that um, and that people can go through addictions, and we should just expect them to manage the withdrawals. But that's not what you're saying either, that there is support, whether it's medication or whether it's time, uh, plus lots of the love in the environment, the caring, and the understanding about how um their life has been impacted by things that they had no control over those colonizing things that you had talked about earlier the impact of residential schools the loss of land loss of language impact of being in a community where there is no clean drinking water or the loss of land through you know evacuations for example that there are all of these forces of colonization that continue to impact our people. And uh, our relatives are suffering as a result of a lack of access to resources. Yeah, so I just wanted to clarify when you say abstinence based program, um, that you're not thinking about suboxone, for example, as a substance, but rather than it's a, it's a medication that is helping someone to survive. Correct. So when
2: someone is on Suboxone or Methadone, we allow that. Like they are pharmacists who come to our center to administer them. Uh, and while they are in programming. So we do not take that away from them because that's a way that helps them right. uh, to get off it slowly. Because it is not right for us to just stop someone cold turkey and say, hey, this is what you are in for for the next six weeks so deal with it so yeah. no so we make sure that we are ha- we do have our medical clearance where if the doctor does suggest certain things mm-hmm. we abide by that and certain medications are carried on for the next 6 weeks that's of awesome. stay in programming
1: thank you very much for clarifying that because when you describe your program as abstinence based people interpret that to mean that you will not allow them to have suboxone probufene Um, methadone, and and that's not the case. So um, it's a different way of describing abstinence-based treatment because oftentimes when people describe their program as abstinence-based, that means no medications. Um, So thank you for your good work, for your good heart work, for caring for people, for extending that love and ensuring they have the medications they need to survive and to work through... Um, their wellness in a in a safe and a, a positive way. I think I just want to add to that conversation.
0: When we're t- we're talking about abstinent based um, coming from a traditional uh, board and a traditional uh, outlook, the hope is that that as Indigenous people we can find a place where we don't need substance or any sort of addiction pieces to fill the places that need healing so that's a long like long term so when we talk about abstinent base that's the goal and the hope that when people leave here that's what they want and, and we've had people be able uh, to attain that um, however and part of that cultivating safe space that well-being um sandra and i've had lots of conversations about that flexibility and so there are like a medication list we have that people can have so much of something that they may be using in that detox process but we also Mm -hmm. take into consideration that if it's over that's why we need Sandra why is that she has that medical minded here's why and she'll explain it to me um and I know we had one uh, gal that we almost... I was like, well, just discharge her. Just, that's way too much. Discharge her. And Sandra's like, well, here, let me explain this to you. And she became one of our our greatest successes. Uh, she was on home arrest, and she was suboxone, like, over the top. And I was like, in my little mind, no, no, that's not going to work for us, abstinent base, and and Sandra just really was able to open that uh door for us and that lady ended up getting her children back
1: and all kinds of stuff so thank goodness for Sandra exactly <laughs> yes i mean because that is you know allowing people supporting people it's not allowing them because you don't have the right to say whether or not they they can take medication it's like telling a person who is living with diabetes if you don't start exercising and eating right, you can't have your insulin. We would never, ever, ever think of telling anyone that if you don't eat right and you don't exercise, you can't have the very medicine that will ensure that you can, continuing, you can continue to live life. And so when I think about the medications that people need to stay alive without unnecessary suffering, that's an expression of love, that's an expression of compassion, that's an expression of of humanity that you are relating to your relatives and, and understanding they're human beings, and that the emotional pain that comes from the traumas they've experienced in life are just as great as the physical pain that they experience when they are withdrawing from things like methadone. I'm sorry, not methadone. When they are withdrawing from things like methamphetamine, when they are withdrawing from all of the variations of opioids, when they start to uh, shift from a reliance on benzodiazepines and all of uh the different variations of benzos that there's an impact on their physical being so i'm extremely extremely grateful for your compassion in balancing both the physical the spiritual the emotional and the mental well-being of your client of your relatives
0: boy that's a hard change yeah. isn't it participants applicants relatives it is you really have to make a conscious like click switch Yes. Especially when
1: you get reports that say I'm client, gonna, you're like. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> I'm going to work at that switch. <laughs> Hardwiring yeah. the switch so I can make sure that it's turned on. <laughs> okay, so is there anything else that you want to say that I have not asked you about or that you wanted to um, clarify from our conversation today? I think
0: one of the things that is. And it will be an ongoing message for us of the importance that, of that land-based piece for us. It's something that um, there's no scientific proof. That's a gift that's been given to us as Indigenous people, that getting people to the land will provide that healing piece. that um, competencies won't, you can't check those off accreditation, you can't check those off. And I think the more that we make a conscious effort to ask ourselves, what does decolonizing mean to me as, uh, as a helper in this field? And what's that going to look like? I'm, I mean, I've made staff move their desks so it's not a principal's office. Little things like that. But getting people back to that land, and, and we're really excited. Starting tomorrow, we just got some extra funding from Canadian Heritage, to start healing camps and so um, we are going to uh, take a group of our men out and they're going to build teepees and they're going to sleep in teepees and they're going to make their own food and um, we have no power on our land so they're going to use a generator but that's all part of it and giving them that sense of responsibility again um, to connect uh, one of the guys said I really like this treatment program because people talk to me here. The staff talk to me here. And, and I was like, what? Uh, not realizing that that's sometimes not the norm. And so right. um, I think in, in all that work, it's a very conscious effort. But you have to, as a leader, do your own heart, H-E-A-R-T, work so that we become stronger helpers and stronger leaders um, so that we're able to extend that love and compassion to other people. Um, You know, one day Sandra and I were talking, and we were a bit, I think probably I was more frustrated than Sandra, and uh, we were saying that authoritative piece is so easy, but then we both, I'm like, but we can't go back, we'll never go back. And so it's a it's a, a worthwhile way to do it. And I know I was just in a summit where Carol Hopkins said something along the line. <laughs> and don't quote me on this. I don't want it to get back to her. Um, <laughs> is despite the funders and all that kind of stuff, do the work for your people that you need to do. If it makes sense to feed right. them, whether you have the money or not, feed them. If it makes sense to whatever it may be for us, it's the land. And so um, we weren't allotted, at, like, this is how much you get for land. We just said, this is what we're doing. And this is how I'm gonna get a cultural advisor. Um, and our cultural advisor is gonna help plan with Sandra. And I just tell Sandra, this is what I want. This is what we need to make sense. I empower them to do what we need to do and
1: it works. And we don't have scientific proof? Well, there is, though, Teresa. There is, because treatment centers are using the Native Wellness Assessment, and it's a Class B assessment. It gives valid and reliable results. And so we filtered all of the cultural practices that have to do with land, and we looked at change in client scores related to hope, belonging, meaning, and purpose. And we found that when client, when our relatives participate in land-based cultural practices and ceremonies, and we looked at this data over three years, so since two thousand seventeen to twenty twenty, we saw consistently that our relatives who are in residential treatment for um, using drugs and alcohol, that they improve at least, at least. in a short six weeks by being on the land, engaged in cultural practices on the land. Their scores in the belonging category increased by 15%. Now, belonging are those things that relate, develop our relationship with family, community, but also our relationship with our relatives in creation, The land itself. We all talk about our mother, the Earth. She truly is our mother because she, she continues to give to us our food and our sustenance, despite what we have, what all the things that we do as human beings. But scores for for our relatives who are in treatment for things like opioids and methamphetamines, benzodiazepines, alcohol, other kinds of. um, stimulants or depressants, that when they go out on the land, their sense of belonging increases by at least 15%. And not only belonging, but the other significant increase that we're seeing is that then people have a sense of purpose. So their scores in purpose also increase as much as 19%. That's quite a big difference. That's a significant change. So when people come into a program and then they exit a program and they're involved in land-based healing, wellness, culture-based activities, it facilitates a change in their wellness as defined by Indigenous knowledge, those relationships to the land, and then learning from how they're relating to the land—it's filling up their identity, their need for an understanding of their identity, and that from there, belonging and purpose—they balance each other. So they have a, a greater sense of purpose that their life has purpose, um, and their purpose is uh, can be many, many different things. So we do have good evidence. Well, I'm gonna—I
0: learned something, so I'm gonna stop saying that and yeah. say there is evidence.
1: There is evidence. There is evidence. Yes. And it's being produced by high quality treatment centers that are offering culture and land and identity, investing in an environment that is uh, nurturing love and trust and faith, faith and belief in who we are as Indigenous people. Congratulations, uh, I would just want to say again, I'm so thankful for the work that you do, the heart work that you do.
0: Thank you so much, Carol. It's, it's been awesome to be here and share what we do. Um, because we know we're doing something different. Um, and I know, and Sandra yes. can talk about this herself, but she was just sharing with me how she gone. I sent them to training and how different experience that was for her compared to what we're doing. Oh. now.
1: So, um,
0: but it's great. Like today, um, uh, we had a staff, uh, par- a practicum staff. She's been teaching our guys to sing. And when they started, and today, it was so powerful. Every, every one of those guys took a lead, and one of our staff wanted to learn. And I just stood there, and my whole spirit, I just started to weep because it was so powerful. And you could just see their presence and their pride and that sense Belonging. Um, they just took great ownership over it. So um, it's it's great work, and, and um, God willing, we'll just keep moving forward with, as Carol Hopkins says, doing what you got to do for your people.
1: Keep doing what you got to do for your for your relatives. Exactly.
0: So so thank you. This was a, an awesome pleasure to share what we're doing and and being able to share that with others um, in
1: that. Yeah, I want the rest of Canada to understand that we have quite high quality programs, that our culture makes a difference. It's meaningful and and while we work to understand what is the relationship between western based models and and frameworks and and how that can be helpful for us i want canada to understand they're never going to take us far enough without the spirit Um, and that's a direct quote from elder Jim Dumont he said we can practice motivational interviewing we can practice cognitive behavioral therapy and those things will make a difference but they will not take us far enough unless it includes the spirit our spirit the spirit of creation the great spirit that gave us our life. So with that, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining me this evening and wish you all the best. Great. Thanks, Carol. It was fun. Thank you, Carol. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of Minobamatsuin. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and where you listen. It helps people to find these interviews. And please hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. For more information on the work of Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, please visit the website at thunderbirdpf.org. And be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for us at Thunderbird PF. Miigwech and thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Carol Hopkins.